0: George Schmidt and the Moravian mission in Gennardendal. As our mission for the last 40 years has been seeking to put feet to our faith and work for Africa for Christ, we like looking at examples of excellence. And George Schmidt was the first missionary to South Africa, and he laid the foundations for the first mission station to be established in southern Africa, Gennardendal, barely two hours' drive away from Cape Town in 1737. George Smith was born the 30th of September in 1709 in Kunwalde in Saxony. At age 16, he left home to walk through the winter snow to join the Christian community at Herrenhut. Now, Herrenhut had been founded by Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf had been brought up a Christian, but what he counted as a major conversion experience was going to the art museum in Dusseldorf and seeing depicted the crucifixion of Christ, and the title of it was Behold the Man. And there was a message written underneath the portrait, this I did for thee, what hast thou done for me? And that led Count Nicholas von Zindorf to fully commit his life to the Lord, and he was led to turn his family estate, Haddenhood, into a Christian community and a mission-sending base. And herrenhood became a site of spiritual revival. Now, the Moravians are spiritual children, descendants of Jan Hus. Jan Hus, the great reformer of Prague, the professor of Prague University. Jan Hus, who said, Woe unto me if I remain silent, for it would be better for me to die than not to take a stand against great wickedness. And this would make me an accomplice to sin and hell. And I avow it to be my purpose to defend the truth which God has enabled me to know even to death since I know that the truth stands and is forever mighty and abides. His motto was Truth Conquers. And the Moravian ministry had continued from the 15th century and Herdenhut became a major sending base now for Moravian missionaries following in the Hussite tradition and This was, particularly in the 17th and 18th century, a phenomenal missionary sending force. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf declared, I have one passion, it is he, it is he alone. That the world is the field, and the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home, where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. And this is what Herdenhut is today. Obviously, grown dramatically, phenomenal uh, community which over the years has sent out so many missionaries. Now, Colonel Nicholas von Zinzendorf launched the longest prayer meeting in history. It actually lasted 150 years. So during this 24-hour-a-day, seven days a week, every day of the year, prayer chain, over 2,500 missionaries were sent out from this small Moravian community to the uttermost part of it. In 150 years, 2,500 missionaries from effectively one large congregation Isn't that absolutely phenomenal? Now, this includes missionaries to the Caribbean, to Greenland, to India, to the Pacific Islands, and even to the Cape of Good Hope. Matthias Strux, missionary to Greenland. Johann Birk, missionary to Greenland. Frederick Bonisch, missionary to Greenland. And Benjamin Gottlieb, who went to Labrador, uh, what today would be Canada. And here you can see some of the missionary endeavors and stations established which in Africa included everywhere from Algeria, Egypt, South Africa, the Gold Coast, but also to India, to Ceylon, to Suriname and South America, to Jamaica, to North Carolina, to Pennsylvania, up in Canada, Greenland, Lapland, all the way to Russia and the Balkans. So what a far-reaching vision these people had. Now, the young George Schmidt began to preach the gospel in the neighboring town of Zittau, and this resulted in him being jailed for 10 days. This experience only strengthened his evangelistic fervor, and in 1728, Schmidt left an even more ambitious evangelistic mission to Salzburg in Catholic Austria. Salzburg might look like a beautiful city to us today, but uh, it was harsh with Protestants and Evangelicals and missionaries. It wasn't long before he and his co-worker, Millicor, Nietzschemen were arrested and imprisoned in Salzburg. And within a year, Nietzschemen had died in the harsh conditions in Salzburg. George Schmidt had <laughs> six long, torturous years, digging trenches, building fortifications as a prisoner, effectively slave labor, for the Catholics. He was only released and able to return to Herlenhut in 1734. Other evangelistic outreaches continued, including to Bavaria, which is very Catholic, and Switzerland. When news reached Count Nicholas von Zinsdorf of the terrible depravity and degradation of the Khoikhoi tribespeople in the Cape, who were known as the Hottentots at that time, George Schmidt was chosen to take the gospel to these despised people. In 1736, in response to requests for missionaries to be sent to the southern tip of Africa, George Schmidt was commissioned to go to Amsterdam and to arrange passage down to Cape Town. The Great Commission was his supreme ambition. After strenuous examination by the Dutch Reformed Church Council and by the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, Schmidt was finally granted permission for the voyage. And he boarded a ship for Cape Town, which set sail 11th of March, 1737, almost a year after arriving in Holland. Imagine a year of just going through the application to get a Protestant country and company to allow a Protestant missionary to go to the Cape. You know, we get frustrated with the weeks and hours and days and months of bureaucratic um, obstructionism and obstacle course we've got to go through. This is quite phenomenal. Now George was shocked by the sinful, careless behaviour of the sailors on board ship and often sought to challenge the captain and sailors about the state of their souls. His four months of persevering, witness on board led to three men surrendering their lives to Christ. This also reminds you that John Wesley went with his brother Charles to America's missionary to try and convert the Indians. But he himself wasn't converted. On the way back on board ship, it was Moravians whose faith and courage and singing, even during a terrible storm, which threatened to sink the ship, convinced John Wesley that the Moravians had a personal relationship with Christ that he lacked. And he said, I went to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? So Moravians obviously had impact on people, and they used ship travel as a time for witness because ship travel in the 1700s was, you know, you weren't sure you were going to arrive arrive alive. Um, shipwrecks were real. So four months at sea, four months after embarking this voyage, George Smith finally arrived in Cape Town. I mean, think what you've been doing in the last four months. Imagine just being on board ship for four months and not a pleasure cruiser either. When George Smith landed in Table Bay on the 9th of July, 1737, he was 26 years old. <laughs> He'd really been six years a slave, uh, digging fortifications and all this, but he is now 26 years old and although he is ridiculed by the citizens of Cape Town as on a fool's errand, absolutely impossible. What on earth do you think you can do? You think you can convert the Hottentots? I mean, this is impossible. Nobody could do it. But his arrival was an historic event. He was the first missionary to Hottentots, as the Khoikhoi were at that time called. In his journal, Schmidt wrote, every evening I visited the Hottentots, sat down amongst them. I told them that moved by sincere love, I had come to them to make them acquainted with their saviour, and to assist them to work. He established his mission base in Bavianskloof, later renamed Garnadendal, or Valley of Mercy, Garnadendal. Schmidt's Moravian mission station on the Sonderent River beyond Caledon was the first Protestant mission station in southern Africa. And I believe it's the oldest mission station in the southern hemisphere, Protestant mission station in the southern hemisphere. Schmidt instructed the Hottentots or the Khoikhoi in the doctrines of the Christian faith, and he taught them practical skills in planting and cultivating. Schmidt built his own simple house, baked his own bread, made his own candles and bedding, washed and mended his own clothing. For seven years, Schmidt worked amongst the Khoikhoi, teaching them to read and to write, and preaching and teaching the doctrines of the scriptures to these very neglected people. Schmidt wrote that he sought as of first importance that he teaches people to love the Lord before they could sing of his glory. So Bavian's Kloof, as it was depicted at the time that he started to build his habitation, and you can see uh, depicted a leopard here in the picture, it was a very wild place. Bavian's Kloof was believed to be a place where there's a lot of baboons, and of course where there's baboons there tends to be leopards as well. So George Smith went from Middleburg, Holland, to Table Bay, Cape Town. And the scripture says, Thou dost make smooth the path of the righteous. His first priority was teaching and training, and he moved from nomad to settler. And the people he's ministering amongst were also nomads, and getting them to settle too. George Smith's diligence and perseverance led to five koi, koi Committing their lives to Christ, and following a period of intense discipleship, he baptized them by immersion in 1742. So the scripture says, they that sow in tears shall reap with joy. And responding to the challenge to go forth and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, he moved the Hottentots from Gentile to Christian. And the scripture says in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And so in response to that, he believed he needed to baptize his new converts. However, the council of policy by the Dutch East India Company forbade baptism by any other than an ordained minister of the Dutch Reformed Church. And this created great offense to some people who claimed that only an ordained clergyman was allowed to baptize and immersion was not their way. His ordination was, of course, now questioned. By the way, this wasn't just picking on him. The Lutherans were also legal, and that's why Strand Street Lutheran Church is built in the form of that it is, which is just built like a warehouse, and they built it to have secret uh, church services. And it was for many decades being used as a secret place, if any before in the late 1700s, the Lutherans and other Protestants were allowed to operate in the Cape. Schmidt and his converts were interrogated in Cape Town. And so after news had spread to the Cape that Schmidt had baptized Hottentots, they brought his converts to the castle where they were interrogated. And here you can see some of uh, what the people were saying and uh, that uh, what they were questioning them. And Joshua and Christian were two of the converts who were particularly brought before the council. And they were asked, how is it that you could be baptized? And they said, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died to save us from our sins. And these learned men were impressed after interrogating them and found that they understood the Ten Commands, understood the Lord's Prayer, they understood the, Ten, the Apostles' Creed, and that they could not deny that they were Christians, they could not uh, questioned their conversion or their sincerity. And so the church council and government officials at the Cape accepted that these were genuine Christians but they couldn't accept that uh, George Schmidt was a legitimate minister. And So Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf sent a letter of ordination but this was not considered acceptable to the governor of the Cape. And so in 1743 Schmidt was instructed to return to Holland and seek ordination from the state church there, which is a bit devious because they knew he wouldn't get ordination from Dutch Film Church. He is Moravian and they would not accept him. Uh, This is just a way of getting him out and not letting him back in. After much frustration and failure to obtain the authorization of the Dutch Film Church, Schmidt ministered throughout Moravia and Silesia and Bohemia. He died on his knees at the hour that he always reserved for praying for his congregation in Cunardendal, at age 76, after a very productive life of energetic evangelism. In 1792, 48 years after Schmidt had been forced to leave the Cape, three Moravian missionaries were again allowed to enter South Africa. They repaired the ruined house of George Schmidt. They restored his vegetable garden and his orchard, and they found a flourishing pear tree that he had planted. And by the way, the third generation of the pear tree is still there in Harnadendal today. When they asked the Hottentots if they remembered the missionary, they were taken to an old woman who, at baptism, had taken her name Magdalena. And she produced a Dutch New Testament that Schmidt had given her. And when asked if she could read it, she said, well, yes, but I've taught my daughter and my granddaughter also to read. In fact, when Schmidt left, she said there were 26 Christians. And uh, uh, she was the one who knew how to read and write, and so she taught the others to read and write, and they would read the New Testament and discuss it and pray over it on Sundays. And so her daughter and granddaughter, who she taught to read, came... And as the Moravian missionaries heard the granddaughter one of, the first con- of one of the first converts, reading from Matthew's Gospel, they rejoiced at the seed, sown so many years before it borne such marvelous fruit. So the pear tree today has got the third generation. But back then they found a the third generation of Christians already in Karnadal. So George Smith became known as the apostle to the Hottentots. Now first they had a steep, step-gabled church like this, and that's still there, but it became too small. And so in time they had to build a bigger church uh, at Karnadendal. And so you've got the old church and today the new church, which was built in the 1890s. Here's a photograph of Karnadendal back um, about 100 years ago. Just extraordinary to see the amount of forestation. And you can see the new church prominently um. Uh, in the center of this place of cultivation. And again, how much the people forested the area, much more forested than it is now. This is something like 70 years ago. And here's what they call a new church, which was built in the 1790s. And the positions of the buildings around 1850, you can see now number 16 here, that would be where the uh, teacher training college was, the first teacher training college in South Africa. The church is number one right here. Here's the old stepped uh, gabled church is number three here. And they've got the printing press is number nine and so on. So a place of order. In fact, you can see how Hrnardendal was modeled on Heddenhut. And it's got the same kind of flourishing body, mind and spirit, agriculture, print shop and all of that. So (coughs) on display, there's the requirements for missionary service. The first requisite for missionary is true conversion of heart. He must admit the deep corruption of his nature, both in soul and body. He must turn in faith to Jesus Christ, who has atoned for our sins, and seek from him the power to become a child of God. And thirdly, he must resolve henceforth to live no longer for himself, but unto him who died for us and rose again. And when the above foundation has been laid in the heart, the desire to do missionary work may take so powerful hold on the mind it suggests to give that person to pray to God to give them a clear answer. Dear Savior, teach me to act according to thy good pleasure. If the thought is not from thee, remove it from me. But if it is the suggestion of thy good spirit, direct in the court and guide me according to thy will. And then those who wish to become candidates for missionary service give notice of their desire to the elders of their congregation, This is then referred to the board of directors and a candidate after realizing what dangers, both bodily and spiritual, are connected with it, the candidate may revoke his or her engagement. What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. Deuteronomy 20 verse 8 is speaking about the need for volunteers who are wholehearted. And this is in the context of being conscripted for war, that those who are fearful should go back home because they don't want those who doubt and are fearful to uh, infect the army. And this principle is now being applied to missions as well. And these are some of the first South African ordained ministers of the Moravian church. And so this is, again, the fruit of George Schmidt's vision that now Koi, Koi or Hottentots becoming ordained ministers of the church. And these are some of the superintendents of the Moravian church from the past through to the present age and churches that they'd planted. And all of these grew out of the ministry at Gennardendal. This is in what is now called District 6, and uh, in Paro, and you can see in Goodwood, all over, and missionaries and ministers, and the conference in 18... um, They say this general conference in 1808. I think that's got to be 1908. I don't think they would have had photographs in 1808. Um, But um, here's a... Uh, You can see the conference, a good mixture of missionaries and local Christians. Psalm 126, verse 5 to 6 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Today, this is what Cunardendal looks like. Absolutely amazing, very flourishing. And there is this new church, uh, prominent, and again, in the same style as in Helen And so the first mission station in South Africa, 1738, visit the historic square and mission step back in time. And it is like stepping back in time. It's a beautifully prepared place. Sometimes it's been used for film shoots because it's so it, it represents centuries ago the kind of architecture and building and uh, very well manicured, cared for church bell and the shops and the Prince House And they've got some lovely museums, multiple museums, such as this printing museum. And the printing museum has in it a whole lot of books that were found in an attic, uh, just like thrown away in boxes and with some of them being eaten by rats. In the beginning was the word. And you can see Christianity has always been based around the written word and the spoken word, the preached word. And the printing press, the reformer's friend, the tyrant's foe. And one of our enemies, Karl Marx, said he would change the world with the 26 lead soldiers of the alphabet, meaning the printing press. 26 lead soldiers, referring to how the printing press used those lead um, members of the alphabet. The writings on the wall, many, many, tickle parson, number, number, weight divisions. You're weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. When God wrote with his own finger on the wall. Well, this whole museum, a series of museums, is a labor of love by Isaac Bailey, and he has uh, put so many different studies, and you can see the man's teacher, and so he doesn't just tell you the history of the museum and of the Moravian movement and George Nutsch, he tells you the history of writing and the history of printing and so many different things, which is phenomenal about the different uh, developments in, in writing and printing. And, of course, of Johannes Gutenberg and the printing industry, and It's an absolute dedication to go there, from Gutenberg to Heidelberg. And of course, Gutenberg's press was a wooden printing press, Heidelberg's was a metal printing press, and uh, uh, Heidelberg's are today, even today, dominating the printing industry. And uh, the best printing presses in the world are Heidelberg's. But Gutenberg got it all started. And so there's a lot of displays on the history of printing and developments of printing around the world and who had key roles, and of course, back In 1999, as we're moving into 2000, all over the world, newspapers and magazines were saying, who's the man of the millennium? And interestingly enough, while they varied in who's in the top 10, they all had as number one Johannes Gutenberg. It makes sense. Print media would say say the man who invented print media is the man of the millennium. Uh, So interesting, Gutenberg was at the top of everyone's list. as the man of the millennium in the sense that you couldn't imagine the information age we're in today without that first major uh, development. And so the Gutenberg Press, which produced the first Bible, a Latin Bible, in 1455. And this is the kind of printing press which printed one page at a time. And it was very laborious. These would be to uh, ink up the, the press. And it was used like like a wine press. but This is for, for ink and for printing. And then they didn't have uh, quick-setting ink, so they would have to hang up the pages like you would hang up washing to dry. And it got to be big business, big industry, and you can just imagine all the work over the years. And the reformers kept the printers the busiest. The biggest concentration of printing presses in the world were Wittenberg first and then Geneva, uh, because of what Luther and Calvin did to produce so many books. There was a time in Luther's lifetime that 80% of all the printed works in the world were Luther's writings. 80% in the world. So that just shows you the kind of domination uh, of the markets. and uh, Printing press has got to be almost like factory level, and now we think about newspaper printing and all of that. And these are the printing trays in which you had all the different letters, that, uh, which the printer would have to put in, in reverse order, uh, into... These trays for printing, a uh, lighter plate made a big difference, but um, this is looking at the kind of printing that was predominant through the centuries and a lot for us to uh, marvel at the technology, the hard work, the diligence that printing involved. I think with our computers and our photocopiers and scanners today, it's hard for us to imagine just how much work printing always was. And the lead engraving, uh, which uh, essential. In the past, they used to do woodcuts, which then, if you've got uh, pictures in older books, it would have been a blank page or area, and then a woodcut would be carved. you put it in an ink pad and stamped it, and that would be the illustration. They even have the smallest book in the world. Um, and uh, <laughs> you could read with magnifying glass, obviously from the Gutenberg Museum in Mainz. So pioneers in the history of the printing press in South Africa includes Robert Moffat, who produced the first complete Bible in African language, the Twana language, at London Missionary Society Mission in Kruterman. And then the Doll printing works became major. There's a lot of great examples of what the Karnadendal printing press was responsible for and what they produced. And this is Robert Moffat's printing press, which I've actually handled up in Kruterman, still there. And uh, yes, bear in, bear in mind that the um, they had to do all of the uh, work and that included the binding, and phenomenal amount of tools and, and work in producing good printing presses. And these are some great examples. So all of this is at Rinaldahl. An amazing labor of love. What a phenomenal collection. And then he even has something on the history of the press and modern four-color printing codes and how we're able to print full color is actually four-color. And of course, the variations between it. And so from Gutenberg to Heidelberg, and some of the examples of old books, all of these found in Cunard Doll homes, which have been donated or uh, were thrown out, and that he's now preserved and kept there uh, for posterity and for education of visitors. Then there's even a paper-making museum on the history of paper and the kinds of paper used and how paper can be made and how you can make your own paper and how books get damaged and what damages them and what kind of insects you don't want to have around and so on. And uh, again, speaking about the wonders of the tree and how much uh, benefit we get from paper that comes from trees. But they're also using silk and bark and rope and wood ash and uh, models of Cunardendal and the different types of housing and building techniques. And then they've even got a section on the rubbish dumps, what they found in rubbish dumps uh, from the past, showing you you can learn a lot about society from the old what people throw away you can see the, the vinyl disc of, of a seven single and um, the different types of plates and pots and jars and pottery and then looking at how the houses were and how they are now photographic showing the renovations and improvements over the years uh, and adjustments of the old church the gabled step gable church and the new church uh, and uh, Isaac Bailey, being a teacher, can't just stop there. He goes into speaking about the world's tallest, highest structures worldwide and giving a history of South African architecture and the kind of houses that you can see in Kandahdendal and the way the people made bricks and examples of it and the pyramids. So uh, this is this is a real major education, how the people used to live when the missionary arrived and the kind of standard of living brought in with the high Christian work ethic and carpentry and culture and music, and the gowns that the pastors would wear, um, all the way down to the actual um, mill. Now, the mill was the heart of the industry. Making use of the water flowing from the mountain, they drove this paddle wheel. And this paddle wheel was able to generate the ability to not only grind corn, but a whole lot of other things. So instead of just pounding corn and so on, like people have done for centuries, able to grind things in a systematic, industrial manner. And the secretary of the colony came here and said, there's no mill uh, in the whole of South Africa that, that can compare with the one granola. It's the best. Uh, when the Bible speaks about a millstone being tied around your neck and be cast in depth to sea, that's a millstone. Um, everyone on our GCC couldn't pick it up. That, that's very heavy. And uh, the anvil, this reminds us of the Bible is the anvil on which many hammers have been broken. How many people have tried to destroy the Bible? All they do is destroy their hammers. And the different tools of farming and agriculture. Uh, so it's a real step back in time, a real education to go to Cunardendal and to see the beautiful square, how well laid out it was, the architecture, the these buildings that were so well built. And next to the church is the original teacher training college, the first teacher training college in the country. When people tell you Wellington had the first teacher training college, not actually. A couple of years earlier, Kandardendal had the first teacher training college operational. Wellington's got the second office. Inside the new church, you can see again it's modelled on the Herrenhut model, uh, the Moravian model, and absolutely magnificent, interesting. And you may wonder what's with this uh, barrier in the middle to separate the men and the women. Um, that was common for centuries. Men sit one side, women the other. Apparently not to be distracted to focus on the message. I don't think that's enforced anymore, but that just is a historical anecdote. The teacher training college with the clock above, and now it houses the central part of the museum. And they honor Johann Hus as the forum of the Reformation, the founder of the of the Moravians, from which Helen Hood was established and out of which Moravian missionaries came. Nicholas von Zinsenorf said, I'm destined by the Lord to proclaim the message of the death and blood of Jesus, not with human wisdom, but with divine power. I have one passion, it is Jesus, Jesus only. And the Moravians are members of a Protestant Episcopal church called the United Brethren, and uh, they were founded in 1457 uh, by followers of Jan Hus. They call it the oldest Protestant church in the world, but I would have said that the, Waldensians are the oldest. The Moravians are probably the second oldest Protestant denomination in the world. Behold the Lamb of God, it takes away the sins of the world. Notice all the Moravians' logos, coats of arms, uh, depict a victorious lamb carrying a banner, normally with a St. George's cross. And so, um, "Our our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. That is the motto. And uh, the emblem here seen in this um, depiction is of many nations coming to Christ. Of course, all nations, ultimately, through the blood of our Savior. Now, you go into the first room in the Moravian Museum, in what used to be the teacher training college, and you can see they've got a whole lot of things in And apparently, uh, there's been complaints that um, that Isaac Bailey had the old South African flag up there, and he said, but it's history. And we've got the British flag here, too, and the Dutch flag, and the French flag. and It's all part of history. And uh, so he refused to move it, and it's still there. Because this is to understand the Cape, and from the uh, Dutch rule, the British invasion, the Batavian rule, the British second invasion, and uh, all the way through uh, the history of the Cape, and what led to Karnadendal's Golden Age, when it was one of the most flourishing towns, not only in terms of uh, spiritual input, training of teachers, but uh, artifacts, they, they, they were a place of uh, tailors and seamstresses and so much Christian creativity, the carpentry, uh, the first uh, knives made in the Cape were made here, and, and so on, very high standards, and so the Golden Age was looked at. And uh, liquor was banned from uh, Cunard evidently is not anymore. Um, and here's just some of the famous Bibles, which includes the New Testament that was given uh, to Magdalena by the missionary George Schmidt. And then he starts to uh, document the first signs of declining life. Of course, each generation must appropriate the Savior. God does not have grandchildren. And so we cannot just live on the faith of our parents and our grandparents each generation has to take up the torch. And some generations have dropped the torch or dropped the ball completely. And uh, they also show how many people from Kronendal served in the military in the First and Second World Wars and the Border War. And uh, interesting looking at how clothing fashions have changed over the years. And just uh, a lot look at the turmoil, the conflict, the court cases, uh, the who were the rulers over these years. And... Here's some of the interesting uh, signs that were around Cunardinol. We consider it a matter of the highest importance that the strictest morality be attended to. Before anyone obtains leave to reside uh, in Cunardinol, he promises to conduct himself in all things to polish, follow the precepts of the apostles. And then it says, everyone must remain in their own house in the evenings and not go around visiting others. All inhabitants of this place must be attentive to cleanliness in a person's house and environs And there's all kinds of rules like this. Um, So this is the oldest fire engine in um, uh, Canondale. This water pump was donated by the Congregation Holland in 1802, used to extinguish fires to clean windows and to water gardens. And here's the fireman's prayer. When I'm called to duty, God, whatever flames may rage, give me the strength to save a life, whatever be the age. Help me to embrace a little child before it is too late or save an older person from the horror of that fate. Enable me to be alert and quickly and efficiently put the fire out. I want to fill my calling and give the best in me to guard my every neighbor and protect his property. And if, according to your will, I have to lose my life, please bless with your protecting hand my children and my wife. Interesting different baths that are there and uh, all kinds of ingenuity, and some of them uh, can be rocked as well. And again, you can see the ingenuity of Christian work ethic and the different tools and equipment uh, inventions uh, that people use in order to make their lives and their daily duties easier and more efficient. And uh, all of these are all history, so uh, just an amazing amount of coffee grinders and meat grinders and every other kind of cheese making machines and waffle irons and irons and, and in um, shooting, rackets, uh, fencing, uh, photography um, and in history of photography. So uh, Isaac Bailey had a real lot of fun uh, turning this into a real teaching opportunity. And it's a great place to take schools and homeschoolers and I've taken homeschoolers and guided tours at uh, before. and photography examples. Well, just thinking, when did you last see tennis players dressed like this? I remember when tennis players all wore white. These days, sometimes they don't even wear a shirt at all. In you know, the amount of people acting like absolute slobs on the courts today. Sports is not what it used to be. I remember when I did sports at school, white tackies, white socks, white shorts, white shirt. You couldn't imagine any other color. I don't know what would have happened, we'd probably be flobbed if we turned up on the tennis court in Rhodesia with anything other than all whites. But Cunard obviously had the standards. And you can see the tennis players and the way people dressed and their, their model of, of a wedding. This looks like the kind of picture that would come from a Jane Austen novel uh, from uh, England uh, back in the early 1800s. And this, this is the kind of model. Um, they're looking at some of the great women in history, uh, which includes people like uh, Cleopatra, and uh, I don't know what Catherine de' Medici is doing there. Um, I would have put it as one of the worst Jezebels out there, uh, Queen Victoria, uh, understandable. Different toys, um, cameras, the bioscope. Remember when it used to going to the bio? And uh, the first radio in Canard and Doll from 1930? Do you know Trans Radio says when they first started their ministry? There were some Christians who said you shouldn't be involved in radio. It's an evil instrument. You know their logic? The Bible says the devil is the prince of the power of the air. We should should boycott radio. And yet radio has been magnificently used for evangelism and discipleship and for worship worldwide. There are some people who, technophobes, who have opposed even good technology, and it's it's a bit strange. But anyway, they had no problem taking the radio into Knautendal. And Tins. Somebody collected a whole lot of interesting tins, I must say. Uh, before recycling, we had tins and glass bottles and jars. And so uh, we would go and we would refill these at the shops. And Surely that's been all the plastic and recycling we do today. And these tins were very interesting. I mean, <laughs> A lot of character. And here they are, a hundred or more years later and still being used. And then office equipment and stamps and coins and a history of measuring time and uh, the creation uh, and how to be able to measure time, how you classify time, solar time or geological time and biological time, all the different seasonal cycles in both life and nature, and chronology and how you actually have a development history of it. So this is really an education. It's—it's it's, You can learn so much in just a day walking through uh, and uh, reading the different um, studies that have been put together. Uh, long case clocks, wall clocks, bracket clocks, mantle clocks, and he goes absolutely wild here with um, a, a watchmaker's shop and the different watches. Uh, by the way, do you know why we moved from having pocket watches to having wrist watches? And when? First World War. Up till First World War, everyone would have a pocket watch. The idea of having a wrist watch, what do you do that for? It was because of the need in the First World War to be able to easily consult time to coordinate attacks that they invented wrist watches. It was specifically for the military in the First World War where wrist watches came about. I didn't get that there, but that's just one interesting anecdote as to why we moved from pocket watches to wrist watches. And what's involved in electromagnetic watch and the tools of the watchmaker and think how much work it took to put all these things together. And he got different people to donate their items to the uh, museum and uh, uh, great heirlooms and things that belonged to their grandparents, maybe, and uh, pastimes <laughs> and all the different ways of being able to uh, signal time and, you know, Big Ben London on and on and how we work out our calendars. So, you then go into an attic and they've got all kinds of farm equipment and it just carries on. Uh, what the blacksmith did and what equipment they used for uh, drilling and trades and crafts and lathing and all the different keys made as well. And the tools of making barrels and what's involved in the barrel. I didn't know about all these different categories of barrel. You know, we just think of a barrel, but obviously there's more to it than to make something that can last on the ships and blast for ages the tools of the blacksmith, and of the farmer. And then you go into the music room, and wow, musical instruments as a means of communication. And the kind of musical instruments that were used by the Khoisan when George Schmidt arrived, and the kind of um, musical instruments that George Schmidt's people brought in, and the organs, and the pianos, and the bugles, and the trombone, and just magnificent. And all these belong to different people in different homes. And he convinced people to donate it to the museum. Some of them on long loan, um, others have been fully donated. Convinced that surely this is more valuable to be benefited by anyone. And you know, as, as he went some homes, said, "Do your children play the organ? Do your grandchildren play the organ?" Well, then let's get it into the museum, and uh, because nobody in your home is using it. And uh, what? Uh, Fifty years he built up this museum, and you can see a lot of history here. And of course. Mozart and uh, Schubert and Chopin uh, and Handel and Bach and just uh, magnificent you can see so many of these made in Netherlands, made in Germany made in Canada even and uh, I think this is the first organ to be brought into South Africa and so these are just some of what's there and there's this lovely message at the end when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more so there's a lot of scriptures, a lot of information like what's important different bugle calls and what they're for. The chief object of the Moravian ambition was health of soul. As the revival deepened, the number of meetings increased. Not a day passed without three meetings for the whole congregation. Five in the morning, they met in the hall, joined in a chorus of praise. At dinner, hour they met again, then about nine o'clock after supper. They sang themselves to rest. At an early period the whole congregation was divided into 90 unions for prayer, and each band met two or three times a week. The night was as sacred as the day. That's just extraordinary. And so singing has always been a mark of revivals. And so he shows the hymn books. And you can see this is a very Moravian emblem, the uh, the chalice. And uh, you'll see in Bill Bathroom's badges over there, he's got a Czech flag with the chalice. The chalice symbolized the Moravians of Jan Hus. Because the Catholics would not allow the laity to have the chalice, they didn't get the wine, they only had the bread, because it was only for the clergy. And So the chalice was a symbol of the Protestant Reformation that, you no, know, we also give the chalice to the laity. Then there's a the history of education at the and it's from George Schmidt to Louis Schmidt. And the different types of educators, the primary school principals and the types of desks they had and the textbooks they had and what they learned and uh, who was um, uh, this uh, last Louis Schmidt and what they achieved. And, of course, a lot of the education was under the Union Jack and uh, Queen Victoria and then King uh, Edward and so on. So uh, the different grammar books they used and all of this shows you both the types of printing – and of course the languages, and Dutch and English, and here are some of the school books printed at Cunardendal because it was a teacher training center. But originally they were using these blackboards, little handheld. When we speak about a tablet, that's what a tablet used to mean. Not the electronic things we use these days. You know, bring your tablet to school. What? They were their tablet to school 150 years ago? Yes. Not the kind of tablet we think of. And some of the School textbooks and so on here, all printed at, at this place. Writing materials uh, and styles of writing, the first teacher training college uh, in South Africa really started 1838. And uh, the students were admitted. And this is interesting when you get to the rules of the school. Oh, my. I mean, Ryan and I had fun reading through the rules of the school and uh, thinking, well, a lot of schools today could benefit from these rules. And uh, you can see that there's been a deterioration in moral standards and character training in the average school today, but uh, the, this is quite educational. And the barbers at one time were also the surgeons, and um, sadly, bloodletting used to be considered a good idea for the surgeons. So, when a person was sick it's because of bad blood, so they bleed you, uh, cut the wrist, and so on. And that's how America's first president died. They, he was sick, so they bled him, and. He, didn't get better, said Bill or more until he died of loss of blood. And uh, it just shows you um, physicians have been wrong frequently and uh, quite recently, too. So here's the chemists section and history of chemistry and history of medicine and the early medical instruments, some of which look quite barbaric, um, and the mission laboratory, the telegraph timeline and how they were able to generate electricity uh, through um, a movement, uh, which is actually quite interesting, um, how they are using a metal pin um, with the isolated lead, which is therefore an electric condenser to store electric charges, and uh, it became an electromagnetic conductor. Uh, quite interesting uh, early development. And so there's a whole lot on medicine going all the way through from... Uh, Somerset Hospital to Chris and Chris Barnard's heart transplants. So I think you can see a teacher set up this museum and a whole lot of their instruments and tools, uh, textbooks of the doctors and reference books. And you can see the kind of medicines that were advertised in the shops, which is also quite hilarious. If nothing and no one else can help, our Lord Jesus is and remains a great physician. And then he adds on, It is the sick who need the doctor, not those in good health. My purpose is to invite sinners to turn from their sins, not to spend time with those who think themselves already good enough. From Luke 5. And in Luke 4, Probably you will quote me the proverb, Physician heal thyself. I'll solemnly declare to you that no prophet has accepted his own hometown. So a lot of intriguing good scriptures, like Christ will give you light, when showing the different lights holding uh, instruments in the homes. And then there is a memorial to George Schmidt. Now, he didn't die here, but to commemorate him, there is a a stone. The first evangelistic missionary in South Africa, born 30th of September, 1709, in Kronenwald in Moravia, and he worked in South Africa from 9th of July, 1737, to the 5th of March, 1744. Died the 1st of August, 1785, in Germany. Those who sow with tears will reap with joy. And the College Museum is just one of many museums there. And so Isaac Bailey put up also this sign What would George Schmidt say to Dahl today? I noticed that after 107 years, God's grace is still prevailing over your village. God has blessed you and Jesus loves you. The message of salvation which I preach is still the same. The man tried through the ages to change it. I'm shocked to see how many churches are on Knodendal today. Each one tries to preach his own gospel. Kudnardendal does not need another church. Kudnardendal needs the Lord Jesus Christ. I would like to meet you one day up yonder, and at the entrance of eternity, God I will not ask you about your church affiliation, but what did you do with Jesus? You ask me what to do, the answer is right above your head. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I'll forgive the sin. When we were out there, we had the privilege of meeting Isaac Bailey, the very curator who set up the whole museum. Fifty years' labor of love, built it up, and uh, he gave us about an hour of uh, insights and information uh, before we had to head off. But uh, what a joy to meet him. He produced the book, The History of Hrnoddahl, 1738 to 1988, which now has been reworked. And another uh, book which we picked up, apparently the last copy they had available, Karnadol, A Valley of Grace, A Long Walk Through the History of the First Mission Station in South Africa. And so um, some of the rare pictures that I've gotten here uh, were scanned from that very book today, despite our <laughs> computer system being completely out today. We actually had to go to um, PostNet to get some of the scans done, because uh, the last two days we've had no internet connectivity. As you are about to leave Hrnodendahl, I've got Alf again remembering that their original missionary came from Germany. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joy. Any questions, any comments at all on Hrnodendahl and the first missionary to South Africa, George Schmidt? Well worth a visit. Less than two hours drive from Cape Town. Just part of our great commission What? At the moment? At the the moment, it's a great museum, but it's a mission field. The mission station is not functioning. It needs to be... uh, The churches are operational, but it's not a mission station anymore. It's a museum. And I think that's a challenge to us because it reminds us that every generation has to take up the torch and that God doesn't have grandchildren. So, Canondal uh, was for, s- for a- about two centuries a powerful mission station, but it's not been uh, doing very well. We've gone and done a few outreaches, literature distribution, so on. I've wanted to go and do Jesus form outreaches and so on evening. Haven't yet had a team ready to go out and join us for that, but uh, I want to make that part of the Great Commission course that we won't just go there, uh, but that we will uh, stay overnight. Uh, spend some days there doing outreaches um, in the community there's a lot of drugs, a lot of drink, a lot of uh, just low living and plainly there's not a dynamic Christian witness. At one time it was one of the most dynamic places. If you read Lady Anne Barnard's uh, diaries, she talks of coming in the singing and the worship and the, you know, one of the most dynamic Christian communities she would ever seen in her life. So uh, that was in the late 1700s. Lady Anne Bond was super impressed with Cunardindol. And many people visited there over the years, Robert Moffat and others, and and they were just uh, overwhelmingly inspired. In a sense, I I don't want to make unfair comparisons, but Cunardindol was like the Quasit of that time. It was the most dynamic spiritual place in the country. And uh, and it, it lasted for generations. But right now it's a mission field. Yes. Yeah, uh, I was at uh, Hanover years and years ago. I, I I think there was two two churches, one the old one and the newer one. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the other one was smaller than the newer one. But uh, he said so. Well, now you've got everything from old apostolic, new apostolic. I mean, there's all sorts of churches all over town. Uh, of course, the historic museum area, they've still got the the, um, the new 1800s church building where services are held. But um, it's, it's not the center of the town's spiritual life anymore. We, in fact, a quite um, a frustrating thing happened. President Mandela showed interest in visiting the place. And when he was president, he came and visited. And of course, everyone was so flattered to have the president visiting and so on. And he decided to rename Westbrook Krutusko uh, State Hrnodendal. Um And uh, that was interesting. Um, but then he offered Isaac Bailey that uh, they would help with renovating. And so the Department of Public Works got involved. And of course, when they started to uh, offer some money to help renovate, Next thing is, um, in come the conditions, strings. And um, they then kicked out Isaac Bailey, who had founded the place and run for 50 years, and bought Hindu to run this mission museum, uh, who very quickly embezzled funds, got involved in all kinds of gross immorality, and had to be kicked out, but nevertheless uh, caused a lot of ha- havoc and chaos. And this is just typical. You cannot accept government money, because government money always comes with strings attached. And uh, fortunately, they seem to have regained control over the museum. But uh, that the, the Hindu who took over, I, I met him. I was there a few years ago, and he was planning to to get rid of all this rubbish. I mean, he didn't. He thought all this stuff was necessary, and he wanted to get rid of. Uh, he is literally calling all these treasures rubbish. And what on earth is a person like that doing, being put in charge of? You need a Christian to run a Christian museum. I mean, could you imagine asking a Jew to run a Muslim? A mosque and museum in Saudi Arabia. It's just unthinkable. So uh, how Christians can allow pagans to come in and take over their own places. So right now, uh, they've gone through a real series of crises. The museum survived, but of course, um, what we now need is not just survival, but revival. Uh, I just see it as a real challenge, because i 've seen historic places all over the world, which are now mission fields. You go to Britain, Germany, many of these great, wonderful places where so much uh, of the grace of God was seen in centuries past. right now, the people there are lost they need the missionaries to go to them now and take these places back and Here this is not that far from Cape Town just here there's a great challenge we need we need a missionary to Karnadendal to revive the work of these days. Anyway, it's, it's, it's not that far away, but it, it takes effort because it's not that close either. So, any other comments? It's a fascinating thing to go and to be able to physically see and touch so much of past centuries and to see how one person could make such a difference and so many tens of thousands of people impacted by it. And uh, also to know there's a direct link, not just to George Schmidt, but to Nicholas von Zinsdorf and to Jan Hus, I mean, this, it just shows the, the impact. But anything can run down and be mislaid if we're not careful. We've got to stay close to the Lord. We've got to be daily studying the word. Human nature is our enemy, and we can just so easily get distracted it deviated. It's like progress, progress. Got to get back on the narrow path. It'd be quite interesting to know how one day living in that place unfolded. You know, yeah. waking up because I think it'd be very strange to us. Today. Yes. Well, as I said, they might have three, four, or five meetings in a single day where everyone was involved in. It, it, it was a community. There's a lot of prayer and praise and worship, and and hard work. And you can see the creativity in the people who are industrious. It's an interesting challenge to our present age. So, any other comments, observations? We started with from Greenland's icy mountains, because that was one of the greatest missionary sending hymns of the 19th century. It was so well known that everyone could sing it off by heart, they said, in any mission society. It was so well known, they didn't even need the words for it, and it was registered as David Livingston and Robert Moffat's uh, favourite hymn as well. Um, but um, obviously that hymn wouldn't have been around in the days of of George Schmidt, uh, but the Moravians were the people who are credited with bringing both John and Charles Wesley to the Lord. We looked at a while ago too, so the the inter- linking of these movements. It just shows you for good or ill um, uh, what we sow is what you reap and there are consequences both good and bad depending on whether we've sown in the spirit or sown in the flesh. It would be nice to take everyone out to Gnodendol but I trust that at least this um, presentation and those who benefit from it by video or audio uh, will get some benefit and uh, maybe have the opportunity to visit the museum. Um, I'm going to encourage them to put as much as possible online. I think there's a need to digitize a lot of this heritage as well, to make it available for those far away. But may it also be a warning to us that uh, while a work can flourish, there's no guarantee it'll flourish if the next generation does not get the vision and make it their own. And so every generation, the Great Commission must be fulfilled not just amongst all peoples of all countries, but of all generations. And every generation needs to be revived and reappropriate the Great Commission for themselves.